So good morning. Thank you so much for joining us, Henrik. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So I think what we'll do first is a quick introduction from you, if you don't mind, who you are, how you got there, who you're with, and then we'll have our fun conversation from there. Awesome. Well, thanks again. I'm Hendrik Van Hemert. I'm the managing director of Edo. So Edo is a new company. It was born out of work that Avista out in Spokane, the electric utility, electric and gas utility, and McKinstry, a leader in design, build, operate, maintain, built environment. So those two entities stood up a new company called Edo, really focused on the intersection of building and grid. So I've had the opportunity to lead Edo for the last couple of years. We've gotten started. Awesome. Welcome. So this new company is a marriage of, like you said, Avista, which is a utility for those folks who don't know that, and also McKinstry. And in general, what are these, I mean, obviously the utility has to do with energy efficiency, but what role does Edo play in energy efficient projects in general? Yeah. So our, our mission is to make buildings as energy efficient and grid interactive as possible. So we really believe that in order to get to decarbonization of our built environment and transportation and other sectors, we really have to find more flexible resources. And the best buildings are not those that consume the least amount of energy necessarily. The best buildings are those that are highly efficient and highly dynamic with the grid so they can actually support balancing supply and demand beyond just their internal walls. Awesome. I'm glad you actually think about all of the things. And I know a little bit later, we're probably going to get into talking about health and other metrics as well, because the last couple of years has sort of rocked our world and I think made people rethink a little bit what, what buildings mean. So we'll get into that a little bit, but we had a great conversation the other day about, you know, really what is high performance and what is sustainability? I mean, we have all these buzzwords out there, but how is your company really envisioning? What does that really mean? I think part of it is just this, you know, as you mentioned, the ideas of sustainability and high performance or net zero or decarbonization, all these terms, really what we have to do is take a systems perspective, right? A systems thinking perspective and imagine how a building interacts with the buildings around it and the grid that supplies power to it and how it ultimately serves its occupants. So we try to take that perspective of, you know, buildings should be comfortable, productive, healthy environments. They should also be net positives to the grid, right? They should have, they should interact with the grid in a way that kind of co-optimizes between what the grid needs and what the building needs. And so, yeah, it's been a fun time to be in this space. There's so much happening and COVID really accelerated thinking about buildings as a, you know, not just a place for people to go to school or to go to work, but also as a place for health and wellness and, and the importance of making sure that buildings perform that kind of core mission first. So yeah, it's been an interesting two years for sure. Definitely. So when you say net positive, for those folks out there who don't really quite know what that means and maybe some of the trade-offs that a utility company might need or want, um, and I know some of them might even be counterintuitive, what are, what are some of those issues you're negotiating with right now? Yeah. So, you know, I think if we, back to this kind of redefining what a great building is or what a high-performance building is, Part of it is, you know, that the grid is not, you know, static. The, the conditions on the grid, the, the cost of energy, the amount of carbon embedded in that energy change throughout the day. And so part of, you know, in order to get to a total decarbonized system, we have to have ways to sort of use energy when it's low carbon and cheap 
um, which happens in California every day when the sun is shining. And then we have to be able to find ways to reduce our load or reduce our consumption during periods where the grid is strained, either based on carbon or based on cost um, or based on capacity. And so a building that is high performance from the perspective of over the course of a year, maybe it, it produces as much power as it consumes. That that was kind of our old definition of high performance. That would be a net zero building from an energy or carbon perspective. But the often what's missing in that net zero conversation is what happens every single day. You know, how do we actually make that work if every building is performing in that way? So if every building has a ton of rooftop solar and is producing a ton of energy on a sunny day, but then needs to rely on the grid at other periods, we get into a challenge that, you know, is playing out in California and Hawaii and other places where they have high solar penetration, where we can't really cost effectively meet those energy needs. And we end up relying more on, you know, carbon intensive resources than we'd like. And I think part of our kind of mission and values speak to these three interconnected crises, the affordability crises, the uh, equity crisis, and carbon crisis. And all three of those, or climate crisis, I should say, all three of those are really interrelated, right? We can't, we have to decarbonize our electric system and our buildings, but we have to do it in a way that's affordable and equitably applied. And so there's an interesting role for utilities to play in achieving scale and also achieving some of the utilities mandated or regulated mission around equity and access. Definitely. And I don't think that's discussed often enough either, how all that plays out. Cause like you said, they're very connected and it's really complicated too, to look at the different scales of each of those. And then, I mean, understand how to do better. Right. <laughs> yeah. And there's still, you know, it's very early, early days to try to figure out what a grid interactive efficient building. That's what DOE calls them. What a grid interactive efficient building really means, right? I mean, it might be different in different locations. It might be different at different times of the year. So part of it is just starting to build some common vocabulary and starting to build standards and metrics and think about how we can really start down this journey of thinking about the building as part of a broader system and how it's, you know, energy consumption and production really relate to its neighbors and the broader grid. Yeah. And that kind of is a great segue for us to talk about the South Landing Project. And basically a lot of the things that you just mentioned are featured on this site. Do you want to give us a little bit of a bio on the project and then we can kind of dive into some of the questions we have there? Yeah, for sure. So the South Landing Project is a new development project in Spokane, Washington. Uh, South Landing is refers to the location. It's on the South Landing of a new pedestrian bridge that connects that neighborhood to the university district in Spokane. And it's a really exciting project. It was reborn out of a partnership again between McKinstry and Avista. And it was land that was slated to be a substation to serve the growing you know, energy needs of the community. And yet it's kind of a really interesting piece of real estate right next to the university district and this kind of bridge and connection back to downtown Spokane. And so at the time, you know, thoughtful folks, <laughs> I wasn't uh, involved at that time, but uh, lots of other thoughtful folks were really working together on how can we do something more interesting than just put a substation on this piece of property? And how can we kind of redefine and demonstrate to the market what a high performance building that is grid interactive that really supports these mutual needs? What does that look like? How would that work? How you know, can we bring that to fruition? And so South Landing today is consists of two buildings. One is called the Catalyst Building, which is primarily home to Eastern Washington University. And in the Catalyst Building, it's a cross-laminated timber building. So it's sort of an interesting construction methodology and a beautiful, you know, all wood building. 
and it's the Catalyst building has rooftop solar and is served by the second building on campus, which is the Morris Center for Energy Innovation, which is we also call kind of the Energy Hub building. It's the central plant that serves the Catalyst building and any future buildings that'll come on site. And together, these buildings are all electric. They're super high performance. Catalyst is going for zero energy certification and zero carbon certification. The Morris Center has this really interesting, you know, ground floor, what would normally be your coffee shop and kind of retail space is actually the central plant. So we really highlight the way the system, you know, produces and stores, consumes energy um, and shares that energy across building boundaries. Yeah, I really, I appreciate how all the equipment is highlighted, like you said, at the central plant. I haven't actually seen it since it's been completed, but I was on site when all of this was being built and had the opportunity to work with McKinstry on this. And it was really interesting to see all the glazing around. And then you could see all of the, the thermal storage and all of the piping. And it was, it was pretty cool to see all of that. Yeah. That's yeah, sort of an energy nerd stream. Yeah. <laughs> have all the boiler room exposed for everybody to see. Yeah. It was pretty excellent. Yeah. And from like an educational standpoint too, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to really show people what the guts of a building look like when, you know, your everyday person doesn't see that. Yeah. And especially for the students that are going to be in the catalyst building too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, yeah, and one thing that's, you know, it's fun about it is it's really meant to be a living lab. So you know, it's constantly changing. Just a couple of weeks ago, there was a big team out doing commissioning of some new sequences that take advantage of these new phase change storage tanks. So a different way of storing thermal energy. And so we're constantly trying to add and adapt the system to test new technologies or test new operating approaches or, or use it as an educational space. So it's a, it's a fun kind of dynamic place. And we're so excited to hopefully emerge and have a chance to be in person more often. Bertram the last two years of challenges. So, yeah. I'm curious too, I have two thoughts here. They both have a TE, so thermal energy storage and then tenant engagement. So it's actually, I brought Shelby along today too. She was really involved in the tenant engagement program for the Catalyst building. And one of the aspects of that was, like you said, this educational piece and using these sites as a living laboratory. So I guess the first piece that triggered that thought was, so this thermal storage, you want to talk about some of the cool features that you have? Yeah. yeah so the building has the, the Morris Center. So the Energy Hub building has just kind of massive uh, water tanks. So think of them just as really big water tanks that we can either store hot water or cold water. So it, they're pretty dynamic in that they can store energy in different ways. And so we can produce energy based on carbon intensity or cost or whatever variables we want to use to kind of trigger that optimization. Um, and so we have significant thermal storage tank in the form of water storage. And then we also have these new tanks that are phase change materials. So it's almost like a vegetable oil. We often describe it as like salad dressing is the way we describe it. Yeah, we these big vegetable oil tanks that essentially are more compact versions of thermal energy storage versus water and they have some different properties and they can store energy, especially where they store cold water so or, or cooling energy. So they're used to optimize our kind of summer loads. But in all cases, we have just like this playground of cool technology that we're optimizing in real time. And we're trying to understand if we change, you know, chiller loop temperatures, what thermal storage capability is best applied there and 
you know, overall the building can go on these thermal storage tanks for many hours of its operation. So it can really reduce its load at certain times if the utility needs that load reduction. That's, that brings me up a question. <laughs> how, is, how is the communication between the utility and the central plant? How does that operate and how are those decisions made? Is it all AI? Is it operators? Is it, you know, how, how are those decisions made and who's communicating with each other? Yeah, awesome question. And not an easy one for the industry <laughs> at large, right? This is one of the challenges is how do you do that communication in real time and not rely on, you know, operators and so in South Landing, Avista's R&D lab is actually in the Morris Center. So they're one of the tenants. And so that was somewhat by design to have all the stakeholders sort of co-located so that we can work in this living lab together. And so we were testing different approaches for both communication kind of methodologies and protocols for how the utility could send signals. We also are looking at different rate structures and tariffs. So could the utility create pricing that would actually incentivize the building to do the, you know, do the right thing, quote unquote, for the grid at different times of the day. So part of our learning is actually in the, how do we operationalize this? Not just can we build the technology, but build the systems, but can we actually operationalize it by working on tariff structures and on communication methodologies and on signaling and forecasting. So we have teammates on the Edo side and teammates on the Avista side that are in real time working together. And we, we have different kind of technical advisor groups that meet regularly. And then we have kind of a working group that meets every week and talks about well, what are we going to attempt to do this week as far as using these resources for grid benefit? And how do we balance that against at all times not wanting to have any occupant impact? So we're constantly kind of sensitive to what's going on in the classrooms, in the buildings, and then what we're potentially trying to experiment with or, or learn from. Yeah, so not complicated at all. No. Exactly. Keep it simple. <laughs> Sounds like a lot. <laughs> like a data salad. Yeah. <laughs> and we do. I mean, part of what we're, we're really fortunate to have some grant funding from the state of Washington, and we also have a pending grant from Department of Energy federally. And for much of that grant funding is really towards creating optimization tools. So using machine learning and actually bringing all that data together and thinking about it's one huge sort of co-optimization problem, right? How do you meet all of the occupant needs in real time while also meeting all the grid needs in real time? And how do you make decisions? And ultimately, if there are balances or trade-offs, how do you make those in a way that's scalable? They can't rely on, although we have really awesome facility operators out there, they can't rely on them having to make those decisions in real time. Yeah. Have you noticed, and I know the occupancy has been a challenge just with everybody working from home and things like that the last couple of years, but in terms of any of these changes that you've made or what you've learned since the buildings have been open, what kind of occupant issues are you seeing? Or I guess compliments? What yeah. Are you, what are you trending right now in terms of yeah. satisfaction? Yeah, well, good question. A few things. I think Overall, the occupants seem really engaged in the kind of story and the purpose of the building. And I think we, we always get a lot of positive feedback based on just people wanting to be in a building that is trying to achieve these really high standards and, and trying to really do well by the natural environment. So we get a lot of positive from that. We also have, like any building, the normal sort of, hey, there's a rattle here, or it was a little cold this morning, or whatever those issues are. What we try to do is be really proactive about it. We're monitoring tens of thousands of points of data in real time, so we can actually flag a temperature anomaly or anything like that ahead of time, and so hopefully we can proactively address it. And sometimes, you know, there are comfort issues or complaints that come in, 
and we have computerized maintenance management system that we have our own system and supported by a 24-7 contact team. And so at any time, if somebody reaches out, we jump on that issue, we go kind of root cause it. And you know, for the most part, the building has performed really well, but like any new building, you always have a little bit of like working through the kinks. And with that project in particular, because we had so much of the building unoccupied for the first you know year and a half, two years, it's been, you know, it's been just kind of the, the that normal sort of, I have to think of like six months or 12 months of kind of like settling in. It just feels like it's a little bit extended. We haven't had very many issues, but we also are really sensitive to the fact that we haven't had full occupancy through every season. Definitely. I'm just curious if you want to talk, Shelby, a little bit. About, I know there are three different pillars kind of represented that engagement. You want to talk through that a little bit and then we can bounce that off and see what's yeah, working. yeah. I'm, I'm happy to talk about that, but I think yeah. we kind of need to back up a little bit in in terms of like a net zero building, right? We're we're looking at mostly plug loads for the energy use that's that's happening there, or the energy profile that's happening there. Correct. In and, terms of the occupants, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. So we really identified that as an opportunity, like you said, like it's a very cool building, and they're excited to be there. But unless you educate them on why the building operates the way that it does, and the intentions behind that, and intervene in some <laughs> some situations, there's not going to be as high of a chance of success as there would be if you're implementing a tenant engagement program. That's what we're, we're struggling through that right now with uh, our university and in teaching people why it's good to save energy. <laughs> well, in, in our instance, it's a lot of low performance buildings and yeah. we're, we're trying to keep people comfortable and keep them happy in those circumstances. Whereas in a new building, it's, these are new interfaces and new systems and they may not understand all of the data that's flying over their heads in real time. So our approach to the tenant engagement program for the Catalyst building was number one, focusing on energy efficiency, training occupants of the importance of that, what their role in the energy profile of a building really means and how they can impact that on a day-to-day -day basis. Number two was building a community effort or a culture of energy efficiency and wanting this building to be a success. So that's a little bit more social science driven, bringing these folks together, bringing those different academic departments together to say, hey, we're in this building, it's a privilege and we're really excited to be a part of it. And lastly, or third was our third <laughs> pillar would be comfort and well-being. You know, we've talked a little bit about how being in buildings has changed over the last couple of years and what that means for personal comfort and personal health. And as we navigate this still end phase post COVID-19 life, what that means for people's health and well-being. So those are the three pillars of tenant engagement that we really stand by. It's our foundation. We think it's important and we have since applied that to other things as well. But we think it was incredible the way that the Catalyst building has come together and, and how important the occupant really is in that building versus any other, you know, typical performing or non-grid interactive building. Because if the plug loads go up to the ceiling and people are <laughs> plugging in everything, and even if it's still a super efficient building, those goals of net zero and those goals of grid interactability, they shift. And, and that can change the entire direction of a project. 
it's a really good point that the building, you know, not all buildings, of course, are the same. And but the way they use energy is really different, too. And the more efficient, you know, this building is seeking or shooting for an EUI in the low 20s, which is just really amazing. But that means that, you know, up to half of that potential energy is coming from either plug load or lighting loads that are really occupant controlled. And so that that tenant engagement, occupant engagement, and just the overall, you know, a lot of plug load is sort of uncertain over the life of a building, right? Over the next 50 years, what are we going to plug in? We don't really know, <laughs> but we, we know that it has a big impact in this building's load profile. And just as you mentioned that this idea of like, if we're trying to achieve other goals like grid interactivity, we also have to be really thoughtful about the role occupants play in that. And so it's been interesting to see different Kind of occupancy patterns just because of class schedules combined with COVID and decisions in real time about whether classes are in person or hybrid or remote. And so it's been a little bit hard to really nail down the types of engagements that are going to be most effective, especially in light of all the other things that people are thinking about right now relative to buildings. But we've made some changes that are really about wellness and really about kind of people's comfort and confidence in the spaces they're in. So we've really push the outside air up. Much of the building was designed to have demand control ventilation, meaning when you know you see CO2 levels rise, that's when you kick on outside air. And for many of our spaces, we've actually tried to increase outside air above and beyond that just to make sure that people really understand this is a super safe and super comfortable building to be in. But yeah, people are dynamic and also have a huge role to play in finding ways to kind of meet them where they are and help educate them without being, you know, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that the building doesn't exist for them to, you know, not use it. We want it to be used. We want it to be engaging. We want it to be active, but we have to kind of find that right balance as well. So much to learn in that space, right? So much happening in the behavioral science world. You said something the other day that just, I was really happy to hear you say it because it's not often that you do hear this, but you said, you know, it's really important to understand that this building or these buildings were actually designed for people <laughs> and they need to use it. And a lot of times when I talk to people who are have really high energy efficiency goals in particular, they, they sort of forget about that people piece. So that made me happy. <laughs> so that was yeah. Well, it's so easy when you're in this world of energy efficiency and it's so easy to you know, kind of gloss over the fact that these buildings have a greater purpose than some percentage savings off baseline year or whatever we get, you know, you just yeah. get used to your metrics and you get used to your goals and you got to kind of step back at times. I was actually working on a project at the school district a couple of years ago, and it was, it was a really beautiful building. It was a new high school, super high performance, had a ground source system. And one of the features quote unquote, was a lot of controllable outlets. So, you know, the designers thought about, I wonder if we could, you know, essentially control, centrally control all these outlets all over the building as a way to really reduce, you know, plug loads, which is in some ways a really great strategy. About six months into the building being occupied, teachers were just really, really frustrated because primarily laptops weren't getting charged overnight and there were just all these weird issues. And at the time, lots of people spent lots of time trying to figure out what's going on. And of course, the folks that came out on site came out you know, during normal business hours and everything was working and nobody connected the dots back to this programmable outlets kind of strategy that the, the original design team had put in place. And so there was actually an effort to 
kind of rewire parts of the building to try to address this weird power issue they were having. At the end of the day, it was intentional. It just wasn't communicated. And it was like as simple as just saying, okay, let's just label the outlets that are controlled a little bit more. You know, I think there was some very small notation on it, but it wasn't, it was kind of cryptic. So just doing some basic like visual controls to help all the occupants in the building take advantage of it. But it was one of those stories where you're like, best of intentions, but implementation had some gaps for sure. Yeah, that's a good one. I haven't heard that specific flavor of example in that way, but that's that's perfect. (laughs) And I mean, for our tenant engagement program here on campus too, we're installing smart power strips. So those Mm -hmm. intentionally controlled advanced power strips or I always call them glorified sort of protectors, but we, we do them on a one-by-one basis too. So we're speaking with every single individual that has them at their desk, configuring them to their independent schedules. You know, if they're only in on Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, we always schedule Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, because we found some, <laughs> some alarming uh, <laughs> cases of what people do in their offices when it comes to energy use. And yeah. like, I'm laughing now, but some of them were actually very scary. They're fire hazards and, you know, impacts to their peers of health and smells and <laughs> personal microwave espresso machines <laughs> and coffee makers. And I say heated you, blankets, heated blankets. And yep. I say you have eight plugs, please use them wisely. And <laughs> some of them are laughing at me and some of them are laughing with us, but yeah, it's, it's also an opportunity to educate people on a one-by-one basis, especially if we hear from what we call our energy champions. Hey, my colleague down the hall, you know, they've popped their circuit breaker five times this week. <laughs> we've had to call facilities. They have three space heaters going. I'm afraid to talk to them myself. Can you come in and have a very gentle but direct conversation with this person of what we can do? And usually it comes from a place of education. And, you know, I don't one, have the power or the jurisdiction to take away your space heaters. But if this is a problem and you're cutting the power to your entire suites <laughs> offices five times a week, yeah. you know, let's let's find you a solution that still gets you what you need, i.e. warm toes, without causing all of this chaos. <laughs> and uh, usually that goes pretty well. We've only had a couple people really um, agitated about that. But over time, they're like, you know, I... The space heater isn't nearly as powerful as the one that I had, but gets a job done. I can still feel my feet. So, yeah. you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe I was wrong or maybe I'm willing to compromise yeah. more than I originally thought I would. And that's an extreme example here on campus, yeah. which, is, yeah. which is interesting. Yeah. I was going to say, it also speaks just to the fact that we all like our spaces a little different, right? And buildings have to be more dynamic. I mean, they can't just assume that everybody likes to be 67 degrees all the time. And and there's lots of research happening in the space of like what it really means to be, you know, for different people to be comfortable and based on gender and age and all these other factors might actually influence the way we condition spaces. And I think for too long, we've just sort of said, this is the temperature it shall be. And then we've let everybody kind of act around the edges to make their space more personalized. And I think part of the opportunity is really to make the building able to achieve comfort for everybody in it in some form or fashion more effectively than they can on their own. Of course, that's hard in existing buildings and takes time to update systems. But usually when we see like really persistent hot or cold issues, almost always some sort of root cause that, you know, is actually easier to just address than to deal with trying to, you know, find workarounds. Yeah, definitely. 
explaining to people that opening a window on their end of the building <laughs> is freezing up their neighbor on the other side. And <laughs> say, I open up my window, why is it 80 degrees in here? And said, well, because your thermostat thinks it's 34 degrees <laughs> because it's snowing outside. <laughs> like, but I just wanted fresh air. And I was like, yeah, this is a cause and effect. And that's a huge educational opportunity that we, we have those conversations and people are like, oh, you know, they, we think about these things every single day and the way that behaviors affect building energy or, you know, the different yeah. operational systems affect the grid, but people in accounting or people in payroll and people in student services have never had those experiences. So it's a really fun and usually rewarding opportunity to say, hey, this is how this works. I'm here to not patronize you. I'm here to teach you what's going on and hopefully make your day better. And yeah. that's usually a really fun, <laughs> a fun opportunity people are responding to. Yeah. So. That's awesome. I'm curious on your side with the South Landing, we've talked a little bit about the health aspect, but are you starting to notice like we know that hot and cold calls are probably a frequent phenomenon in most buildings, but are you starting to get more calls about like increased ventilation rates as people read articles and learn more about air quality, for instance? Yeah. As part of Edo, we deploy our tools across about 4,000 buildings across the U.S. So we get a lot of data from different schools and universities and hospitals and other uh, building types. And so one of the trends that we see is that you know, you, you end up having at all times, you have some hot, some cold calls, right? You're trying to balance that out. Sometimes it's in the same space or a space that's at the same temperature. So sometimes it's sort of tricky. Sometimes it comes down to like just different preferences of different people working together. And what I've seen is the data kind of shows that we have a desire for folks to really understand ventilation rates and understand filters and understand kind of what we're doing, not certainly us directly, but what their facility teams are doing that we're supporting. And so I think a lot of it comes to education. And I think a lot of the crack a window kind of approach to this is with the best of intention, but sometimes a little bit misinformed because it might actually have a different effect than they want. I mean, if buses are idling outside of a school and you crack the window, that's not necessarily great, right? There could be other ways to bring air into the building that's fresher and cleaner and it's been filtered. So I think what we're seeing is just a lot of interest in that topic for obvious reasons. And you know, interest in different approaches to filtration levels and, you know, is it better to put a box fan with a MERV filter on it and jam it in the window of every classroom or is there something we can do from the total HVAC system that we can apply? That's good stuff. I'm, I'm also wondering, and this doesn't have to be South Landing related, are there other lessons learned that you've had or challenges that you've faced, whether it's energy or health or the combination of the two that you could share? Yeah, some experience we've had in South Landing, I think, are, are worth sharing. So I mentioned before, it's a cross-laminated timber building, a CLT building. And so part of that CLT product is designed for a certain level of humidity. And in the Catalyst building, the intent was that people would provide that humidity by being in the spaces. So when we had really low occupancy there during <laughs> the pandemic, we had really low humidity just based on what the outside uh, humidity levels were. And so that was a kind of an interesting, we took a lot of data samples and we really tried to understand maybe what the impact of that were. I think ultimately the, the humidity stayed within a reasonable level and we were able to kind of manage that. But it's interesting there, you know, just an example of as we have new technologies and we have really dramatically different occupancy patterns than we've seen before, 
over the last couple of years, it reminds us all of just this stuff is complex and you just have to kind of be thoughtful about, you know, it's almost lots of decision trees, right? Of like working through all the potential scenarios and making sure the building is resilient. And I mean, I think what we're going to learn is that the great buildings are ones that are resilient from an energy perspective, from a human perspective, but also that they're somewhat flexible or dynamic, right? And kind of can adapt to different changing use cases. I think maybe the biggest takeaway is just that we're not going to go back to the way it was. We're not sure what the new normal is, but we have to design buildings that kind of flex and adapt to that. Other lessons learned have we had, we've had lots of supply chain challenges, but that's not unique to this project <laughs> and not it's sort of over-talked about. So I won't go into all of that, but definitely trying to get sequence of different systems online and, and equipment online. Maybe the other thing we've, we've seen a lot, both at South Landing, but across the you know entire kind of building space is just the challenge of getting good, high quality data extracted from all these different, sometimes proprietary, sometimes sort of pseudo open, but lots of different systems, right? Buildings produce so much information, but it's really rarely used by operators to do their job more effectively because it's so hard to kind of capture all that data, contextualize it, democratize it, and make it available to all those that could use it. And so that's been a big focus of Edo as a company. And a big focus of this project is really to just unlock all of the data in a way that's cost-effective and scalable, but also makes it available to any stakeholders that can use it. Because ultimately, they're going to use it in different ways. And we have to be able to be flexible about providing that rich data set as a you know source of learning, a source of information for different stakeholders in this whole broad value chain. So Example of that would be student groups wanting to use it for a project, energy managers wanting to use it to understand plug load data and occupancy levels. Maybe some of that data comes from like key card access or data sets that we want to anonymize, but then make available because they're interesting proxies for things like occupancy. We've put a ton of work into South Landing to make this really big, rich data set available. And then we've invited all of our research partners to take advantage of that data set and we make sure that there's nothing in there that is has any personal information in it or any confidentiality issues, but we really use that kind of rich data set as a way to help inform the industry and keep advancing some of these topics. I think that's major too, because it's hard to find data like that. And like you said, it can be overwhelming too. Just there's so much going on. So if you have all these people who want to slice and dice it in different ways, then you guys learn a lot from that as well. Yeah, I'm I'm nerding out about it right now. So we talked a little bit about occupant training and education, you got a little bit into like energy managers and facility operators earlier, but are you finding that there's a steep learning curve there as well? Like, do you have to do some bonus education on the operator side as well? Yeah, I think the operators, facility managers, facility engineers jobs just keeps getting harder, right? There's, Mm -hmm. there's still all of the kind of traditional facility manager, facility engineer tasks performing maintenance, repairing equipment. But then we have this kind of digital layer that frankly, like is not super intuitive, right? Most of these systems are not really designed for the operator. And so we end up having to really be sort of empathetic to different operators and different strengths and their ability to sort of learn new skills, partner with peers that can bring them, you know, sort of insights from some of the data and other things. And, you know, I think that across the whole country, we have a real staff shortage challenge on facility maintenance, facility engineers. And so part of that is definitely continuing education, continuing training, but also just kind of creating more ways for people to get past the death by complaints or death by sticky notes of like, we just have 
for so many years have underinvested in the tools to make facility managers' jobs easier or more productive. And so we work really hard on trying to make sure that our facility teams have the best tools to be really effective in their time. So if they're on site looking at a piece of equipment, they know all of the work order history, they know all the maintenance history, they know whether it's under warranty or not, they can see trend data from that piece of equipment. And they know that if they're out investigating a hot cold call, but that piece of equipment is due for maintenance three days later, they're not, they know that information, they can make a thoughtful decision about, oh, while I'm here, can I also change the filter? And way too often these you know, computerized maintenance management systems and work order management systems that operators use just, I mean, they're just horrible, right? <laughs> I mean, they just fail to do the most basic things to kind of make information visible to those that can use it. And so not only do we have a lot of opportunity on the training and development side, I think we also have a lot of opportunity in the tools that support facility operators. And that's really where we put most of our attention and activity. Awesome. That's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> and also yeah. if they have more information that makes their jobs easier, maybe the occupant isn't the villain. We, we're we're yeah. in passing talking about a, a study that we're a part of where we looked at the comments that operators had about their building occupants of, you know, if they had any interactions with them at all, it was like a, you know, it's not my job to make these people happy. It's my job to make energy performance. And of course, mm -hmm. that's different based on somebody's job titles and their proximity to the building, whether they're remote or otherwise, and all of these other factors, you know, if they have the information that they need in order to make those decisions or have those conversations with the occupants, maybe that tension isn't so tight, yeah. you know, that's interesting for sure. Even what, you know, like just having simple tools for an operator in the morning, get a quick report or a quick visualization that shows how temperatures are across the building and, and gives them a way to maybe proactively call someone or go reach out to someone and say, hey, it looks like, you know, for this reason or that reason, your space may be a little colder when you get in this morning. Can I buy you a coffee kind of attitude, yeah. which really is a, you know, a bit of a mind shift from maybe the way that we've incentivize people in the past, which is to drive down energy consumption or, you know, with sort of these more you know, energy-based KPIs versus more human-centered KPIs. But I do think that there is just having information available to all the stakeholders does resolve a lot of these challenges. And it's not, it's not instantaneous. It's not perfect. It's not that your space is always going to be comfortable because you have data about it, but just being able to see like, oh, okay, my space is a little cool this morning relative to normal, but it's really cold outside. And that kind of makes sense to me, right? What, whatever the variables might be, or they're doing maintenance or something that's just much easier to feel informed and then be able to be sort of empathetic to the stakeholders around you versus feeling like somebody's doing this to you. I think the communication piece is huge too. Like, I mean, earlier with your story about um, people's laptops not getting charged at night and things like that, it's just a communication breakdown, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. I think that I like the idea of buying somebody a coffee. If you know, it's going to be freezing, that would, uh, that would score some serious brownie points. And then, yeah. yeah. And you may not know the answer to this, but as far as the South Landing goes or any of your projects, really, do you know what those communication channels will look like and how building operators are getting their feedback about the spaces, whether that's direct or face-to-face -face or work orders or surveys, those kinds of things? Yeah, I think it's all the above in different projects. And I think great facility programs tend to do proactive, you know, outreach. So they try to find ways to survey or 
great ways for people to kind of share their experiences. Because I think great facility teams do want to make sure that they're serving those occupants in the best possible way. And sometimes you're constrained by what the system's capable of doing, but you still want to hear about it and understand where people, what, what people's goals are, or objectives are. I think what the least helpful way of getting feedback is the like hallway conversation, right? Or somebody grabs someone and says, hey, you know, come look at this. And it's sort of, on one sense, it's nice to have that personal relationship, but the tricky part is often that data is not captured. So we don't know at a broader kind of universal view, like, oh, how many issues are we having on the south side of the building in the morning? Like, are there are there factors that might play, you know, more broadly if you saw all the data together versus the more informal? But I, I sort of think, you know, a great facilities team has to be proactive and asking for feedback has to also be really responsive when somebody has feedback or a complaint. And whether that's via work order system or via a phone call or via grabbing them in the hallway. And then what we try to really preach is getting all that data back together so that we can use it to have a really nice tool for making future decisions. And often with I'll use school districts as an example, you know, school districts have often they're dealing with huge deferred maintenance challenges. And when they go and run a bond, the more data that they have to inform where to spend those limited dollars is really important. And so having that data set build up over time really enables, you know, capital planning teams and others to say, oh gosh, it really looks like this is not just an anecdotal thing. This is an actual thing that we need to deal with, which is comfort in the school or whatever the the topic might be. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. More data. More data. (laughs) More data is needed. Yeah. So did you have any other additional thoughts or aspects of the project you'd like to highlight? No, I don't think so. I mean, we're, we're super excited about what we're learning and we're getting a chance to experiment with. And hopefully this summer we'll get a significant battery storage system outside the building that Avista will uh, actually operate and control. And so we're going to have the opportunity to, you know, to, to really optimize one more resource in this mix. And that'll be a fun and exciting. And we're also really excited about being able to open the building up for more education educational groups and trainings. And it's just, you know, it was really designed to be this living lab for the community. And, and in Spokane, there's just an awesome hub of energy related, energy adjacent companies and nonprofits and educational institutions. So we really want to have that, you know, ha- have it realize that original mission of being this hub for the community. And we can't wait to host events and really get people in there and start doing more on the data sharing side and all that. So, you know, springtime, we're ready to kind of <laughs> burst out of the ground and reemerge and yeah, take advantage of this awesome opportunity we have. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see the final product too. I I was there during the construction, but haven't seen everything all finished. So so okay. what's been I guess the most challenging aspect of the South Landing project, and that can be either of the buildings. And then what's been your favorite thing about this project? Yeah, I, I think they might be kind of flip sides of the same thing. I think. And maybe I'll start with my favorite thing, which has been, it has been so fun to be part of a project where so many different stakeholders are involved in contributing. And so there really has been this just leap of knowledge and information gained from working together across, you know, sort of traditional silos. So everything from having students and, and faculty engaged, thinking about programming and, you know, the actual design of the buildings, all the way through having a VISTA engaged and thinking about the way this can serve the grid. And you know, I do think that the best innovations come when you have different 
folks that have different experiences and different goals or objectives in their world working together to try to solve some common problems. So that, that has definitely been the funnest and most exciting part of the whole project. And I think really creates a great foundation to build on for the whole community. I think the challenging side has often been related to that, right? It's we're trying to do something that's really ambitious. We're trying to do something that is sort of quote unquote, a living lab. And at the same time, we can't treat it as a lab, right? This is a building that has occupants that we need to make sure that we're always serving. And so there's a natural and healthy tension of trying to, you know, keep the vision in, in mind and keep a really aspirational mindset, but, but not lose sight of the fact that we have to perform every single day and have to have the building comfortable and ready for people to show up in the morning. And so at times there are situations where we'd really love to run some experiment or we'd love to kind of play with, I wonder if we dim lighting and use that as a resource to control the building against, or, you know, control energy use, but we have to kind of pause and say, ah, you know, maybe in our offices, but maybe we shouldn't try that for everybody yet. So yeah, I think that it's just been a really great collaborative learning together type of project with a really bold set of objectives. And so with that has come lots of fun and also some, a few challenges and bumps along the way, but, but um, all good learning experiences for sure. Yeah. Uh, we've really appreciated every second of being involved in it too. And it's, it's just been a fun project and from the unique construction aspects to the tenant engagement, to all of the other great things you guys are doing to not only educate people there, but the surrounding community and work with Avista, just all of that stuff is really unique, I think. And we put together some case studies for NIA, the Northwest Energy Efficiency Alliance, specifically on South Landing. And so we can put those links in the podcast here and they talk about this relationship with Avista and some of the unique like mechanical features, the CLT, so if any folks out there are interested in learning more about those specific features, we will put those links on here. Let's see, do you have any other bonus questions? Yeah. Representing Eno as a construction contracting X utility entity, <laughs> which is a lot. And you may, you may not have a perfect answer for this and that's absolutely okay. But what does Eno see the future of grid interactability really being? long, long-term and doesn't necessarily have to be in the region, but what is, what is that dream and, and how does it affect people in buildings? Yeah. Well, you know, the dream for us, the dream for me is that we can decarbonize our built environment. We can decarbonize our electric grid, which allows us to decarbonize transportation and industry as well. So we are laser focused on that, you know, ultimate mission of decarbonization. We also, I think, are equally focused on the need to do it in a just way, an equitable way, in a way that um, is affordable for every, all the stakeholders. And so we believe in the role of utilities because we believe utilities have um, you know, the ability to do this at scale, not at a single building at a time. And so we're working really hard to sort of understand where utilities are at, where the regulatory environment is, what they're able to do in South Landing, for example, we had lots of aspirations of different resources that the utility could own. And ultimately we kind of are somewhere in between, right? Where the utility has influence, but not ownership of a lot of the assets. But in the, in the big picture, we're driven by finding pathways to decarbonization and doing it in a way that doesn't leave folks behind. So I hope in you know 10 years or 20 years or whatever time horizon we put out there that we can point to the role buildings play in helping manage 
you know, variable renewables on the grid and that we can point to buildings as, you know, assets that are community assets that really serve more than just energy goals, but also the, the ultimate goal of the building. And I hope that we can achieve that by kind of breaking down some of the traditional barriers between building and grid, right? Get rid of that demarcation point at the meter and really think about ways information can be shared effectively across both sides so we can get to a better total outcome, a better system outcome. And, uh, you know, I that was a long ramble, but I'm just really excited about the promise of what buildings can do for the grid. And I'm really excited about doing it in a way that's equitable and affordable. And I also think that we can achieve all of that while making significant investments in the built environment, because we know that our built environment, huge deferred maintenance, huge opportunities. So yeah, I'm, I'm just excited about the journey we're on. And, you know, from an occupant experience perspective, I guess I would say that I hope it doesn't feel like anything but a really great building that's serving your needs and that is hopefully healthier and more comfortable than the building you were in five years ago. There's been a lot of just negativity. And so it's nice to hear this opportunity and optimism and kind of the flip side of that. Especially in a way that doesn't make everybody take sacrifices for themselves. Yeah. You know, it's it's and it's going to be more positive and yes, I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) I know that was a big question. So it was a good question. I I thought that it would be a fun, fun way to close this. Yeah. So good question. Good answer. I want to thank both of you for joining and uh, Hendrik, it was an absolute pleasure talking with you about this project. We learned a lot and it's just, it was just a fun, fun time. So thanks for taking the time to do this. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And and I hope we get working together on occupant engagement and other programs in the future. Yeah, that would be great. We'd love to. That's our jam. It's fun. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks so much. I hope you have a great week. Thanks. Same. All right. Thank you. Thank you to Nia and their Better Bricks program for sponsoring these podcasts.